Well, hello and welcome. I'm Bernard Hickey, and this is the Kaka, a hoon on the Kaka, the week that was for the weekend. And today I'm joined by Craig Rennie, who is the head of policy at the CTU and a, a, a regular around uh, Parliament and the Beehive, having worked for a term uh, with the um, finance minister. Uh, Grant Robertson, so very familiar with how budgets operate and um, and also a close observer of the poli- political economy, which is a good thing. Welcome on, Craig. Good to see you. Thank you for having me here, Ben. Great. So the big things this week, from my point of view, uh, with my political economy hat on, uh, were the speech on Tuesday from Grant Robertson. Uh, then we had the pay freeze announced on Thursday, and on Friday we had the fair pay agreements. Let's start with that speech in which Grant Robertson Firstly, said he was uh, setting up his own little group within um, the Department of Prime Minister and Cabinet to coordinate people, five people. That that sounds like a, a full-on job for five people. Uh, so that was the one thing. Um, the other thing he, he said and indicated was that this budget will be a, what he called a recovery budget in which one of the main aims is to keep a lid on debt, to make sure that uh, within a few years, by the middle of the 2020s, uh, the government is repaying debt. He said that, and um, we've heard this too from Bill English in the past, that New Zealand is a small, vulnerable economy and the best thing we can do for the future is to have a very strong balance sheet, which we absolutely do have a very strong balance sheet. A lot of people don't understand that we, we currently have just over 30% net debt. This compares with um, Australia on close to 50 and America on 100 and we'll get back into how those economies think about debt in a minute. But um, first, Craig, what did you think of that speech? And, you know, what does it tell you about where the government's thinking ahead of the budget uh, next week? Well, thanks, Bernard. There's a, there's a lot to unpack in that speech. Um, and these sorts of speeches are as much designed for an internal audience as much they are the external audience. This is about managing expectations both within the media but also within ministers in terms of seeing is there enough money? Where, what am I going to get? How is this going to be managed? I think if we sort of put the debt thing to one side just for a second and look at the implementation unit issue, um, there is a real issue um, in government about implementation. And certainly my experience, and, uh, and I think the experience that, that New Zealand perceives, is that the government struggled at times to get traction on delivering some of the big projects. Um, it's put a lot of money out there through the COVID response fund, which was the right thing to do at the time, but actually getting the outputs and then the outcomes that we want requires a lot of activity and a lot of change. And it requires um, sometimes ministries to have to be able to turn around things at, at paces that they're not used to or that they haven't been experienced in the past. Certainly over the past 10 years, we've seen, you know, under the previous national government, the, there was a systematic hollowing out of the capacity of the departments to actually deliver. Um, so in terms of having an implementation unit, I think there's a really strong argument for saying you need someone whose job it is just to be able to corral, chivy, make sure things are actually happening, that they're happening in ways that were, that ministers, especially the Minister of Finance, wants to happen and on timelines they want to happen. Because there's a there's actually, a, a you know, uh, for the four for the four listeners who really care about value for money and inside the public <laughs> service, um, there are there are there are real challenges with measuring value for money and doing getting value for money in the public service. So, for example, um, everyone believes it's the treasury's responsibility to do value for money, and the treasury doesn't believe it's the treasury's responsibility to do value for money. The treasury does managing the accounts, 
It does man- value for money at a global level. It doesn't do it on an individual project level. And now you have some government departments, um, NZTA, Wakakotahi, Kainga Auto, the old um, state housing, doing a lot of work on the ground where previously they might have um, been just managing an existing asset and not changing too much. Now they're doing really multi-billion dollar long timeline projects. And there's a, and, and so, you know, Managing the costs of that, as we've seen with Transmission Gully, um, managing the delivery of those projects to timelines is a real issue, especially for a government that wants to get things done. So, you know, having a small group of people in the centre um, around the world has been shown to at least help to coordinate that problem and help to give to bring issues to the attention of ministers early. And I think there's there's definitely some value in that. Um, you know, it, it, it's received a lot of, of mockery, but I think that actually... There's a lot of value in getting that done. Um, in terms of the the debt question, um, I mean, you know, it's been the standard Treasury line for since, you know, uh, for certainly since I've lived in New Zealand, um, that we're a small country at the bottom of the Pacific. We're vulnerable to external shocks. We need to have a debt limit. Uh, so that we don't overextend ourselves because of, there's a risk that if we do, we're much more vulnerable than, say, Australia or Europe or the US, which are much more interconnected in terms of um, the global economy um, and have much stronger um, domestic markets to drive the economy. Yet um, S&P and Moody's have just given us AAA ratings. Which is exactly, you know, uh, and, you know and debt and the last set of crown accounts to 1st of March was, um, the 31st of March was uh, 33%. Um, which is um, one, two, two percentage points below the forecast um, at Hayefu. And the other thing is that it's, consider- it's considerably below um, the pre-election fiscal update. Now, this is the one that the government took to people. They said to the voters, hey, this is where we expect the government um, budget to be. This is what we want you to vote for us on. Uh, are you OK with this? And essentially, that meant a debt track headed towards sort of fifty-five percent of uh, mm. GDP. And then, uh, over the subsequent period, from you know September onwards uh, through to now May, the economy has improved. It's done a lot better than we expected. Also, the government hasn't quite spent as much as it hoped. Yes. That's the other side yes. of it. And so, we actually got some budget figures this week showing that the budget deficit is currently around about four and a half billion dollars for the current financial year to the end of uh, March, and uh, that, um, you know, we're looking at a at a debt track, obviously we'll get the real figures in the budget on May the 20th, but we're looking at a debt track that's going to be significantly lower. Mm. Instead of topping out at around about 50 55%, you know, it may top out well below 40%. How much, you know, uh, headroom, therefore, is has the government got, if it chose, to use it? Well, certainly if we use the Hayefu figures, then the debt track is currently running about $25 billion lower than um, was anticipated at PREFU, um, the pre-election economic and fiscal update. And so, you know, you could argue um, that's a COVID dividend. The team of 5 million came together. We made some things. We made some decisions. We spent some money and we've saved the, the crown from having to borrow that amount of money. But essentially, the crown's been given a spending limit by the electorate at the election and said you could spend up to this amount of money. So, and it's also true that things since Hayefu, some of the economic indicators have improved again. Unemployment's much lower than we anticipated it to be. Yes, we saw GDP fall back in the last measure, but until then, GDP has been much better than forecast. Commodities prices are much higher than anticipated. Exports are up. 
So there's a whole bunch of things that um, lead us to believe the economy is doing better than anticipated. So that gap is probably likely to grow at the budget for the forthcoming. But the government is making a choice by deciding, in the noise that we're hearing from the speech at least, and we'll get more figures on Monday when uh, the finance minister is going to give a speech in Auckland where he is going to give an update on the operational allowances, the capital allowances and the debt track. Now, in the budget policy statement in February, he came out and said, we're not changing those operational allowances, even though the economy had improved. And there was a slight increase in the capital allowances, but $7 billion, um, that's, you know, three metres of motorway these days. So that's, that's overplaying it a bit. But, you know, it's not nearly enough yeah, for the yeah. couple of hundred billion dollars worth of infrastructure deficit we've got. So um, effectively, the government is making a choice about that headroom of 25 to $35 billion of saying, instead of spending it on improving child poverty, on improving housing affordability, on dealing with climate change, we're going to bank it, if you like, not borrow that money, have a significantly lower debt track because we fear something in the future. Certainly, you know, you're absolutely right. Budgets are all about choices. And, you know, the government is choosing uh, to put that money in the bank right now and essentially say we're not going to borrow that. Um, but similarly, we're not going to make the investments that we may otherwise be able to. Um, so, you know, I would personally argue there's a lot to be said for thinking about um, in much stronger terms about how we look to the future in terms of climate change, how we build a much more resilient set of infrastructure, uh, be it water, housing, transport, um, that we look uh, towards the future of work and the kinds of jobs we're going to have in the future and how we build that more productive, sustainable and inclusive economy that, that, that the Minister of Finance has talked about in the future and how we best invest to make that happen. You can spend – reasonable people can make reasonable differences in terms of where they want to spend the cash, be it on, on welfare or on infrastructure or on housing or on other things. But the government's choosing right now to put that money, to the best of our knowledge, in the bank rather than out there in the economy. And the question is, is that because it believes the economy is at full bore? It doesn't need the support. Actually, you know, the economy is ticking along well and we're all happy with that. Or does it believe – that it thinks it's going to need that money in the future. And so therefore, it's about, you know, we'll hear a lot of work. I think we'll hear a lot of use of the phrase balance in this. In, <laughs> the, in phrase this I, the phrase we get, I think I, I'll have to do some sort of, you know, word cloud count now in yeah. speeches. Uh, you know, this is how we strike a balance. Yeah. Essentially, it's, it's another word for we've decided not to spend the money. Yeah, and so, and so, so you know, that, but that, the government's making that choice. And, you know, the question is, uh, at budget, one of the things we'll need to see is, why has it chosen that path? To what extent, um, you know, can it demonstrate that we didn't need to make those investments because the government's happy with the outcomes it's going to get from its spending decisions? Do you think they've done the um, well-being analysis on this to work out if they had spent that um, $30 billion on reducing child poverty or building a lot more houses or making sure that our um, public transport and um, you know carbon emissions were going to hit hit a proper level. That this would mean that New Zealand would be X dollars better off in fifty years' time. Do you think uh, that analysis has been has been done? I, I did a podcast this week and talked to Gerald Karajolu mm. about this. He doesn't mm. think that that analysis is being done because um, it's a pity. Because essentially, that's a huge decision that's being made without the proper. Uh, estimation of the benefits we're missing out on. 
Well, Girol is a fantastic economist, and I'll happily defer to Girol if he believes that's the case. Um, I guess what I would say is, um, uh, you know, and we're only here for a short period of time because I could talk about why we don't <laughs> spend things for hours, but um, we're extremely good uh, in government at understanding the cost of everything, at understanding how much it's going to cost to build a hospital on on the third day during Lent when the moon is in the eighth of somewhere, I can tell you to the nearest shilling how much it's going to cost. We're terrible, and we don't estimate the cost of not doing something and the cost of not doing a thing and the cost of not making investments in terms of lost productivity, lost wages, lost jobs, lost well-being. That's right, and also the costs that you're going to incur by not spending that money. So the best example, of course, is you know we've got 150,000 at least kids in poverty. They're stressed. They're often sick. They're bouncing from house to house. They're bouncing from school to school. Their parents are stressed and sick. Um, they're going to struggle at school. Um, they may end up um, struggling to get work. Um, they're obviously not very happy. Their uh, problems with mental health and their physical health will r- ripple through the rest of their lives and often into the lives of, of their kids as well, and that's going to mean higher healthcare costs. It's going to mean brutally, um, you know, lower output from those, lower taxes um, from those people, and uh, you know, more uh, cost in the long run. Higher justice costs, education costs, welfare costs, um, and that's a real thing. Which is why it's so important to take proper lifelong analysis of. What do we need to invest? What are the levels of investment we need to be making consistently in the long term in health, in education, in justice, in housing? And about actually setting those at a level that you know, maintains at least the current level of where we are before we get to what kinds of you know, improvements do we want to purchase over time. And the public finance system as it's currently set out doesn't do that. It essentially makes, this, makes those choices about, well, you can trade off health against housing against transport against something else because if you don't need to spend the money or you don't want to spend the money no one's going to ask you well if you don't spend the money what do you lose what do you not get however if you do decide to spend the money you'll have 558 treasury officials turn up and tell you why you shouldn't be spending this money or why if you spend the money in this way you should be doing it this way, or perhaps you should defer until you've done more policy work. Um, so, <laughs> and that's one way to stop the spending. Uh, and uh, what actually happens is that there's an underpinning under all of these debates, which is that debt track, and which is that you know um, public finance mm-hmm. act, which says your job in government is to uh, manage the books to get debt to a what they call prudent, prudent. level, um, which is a, a very uh, uh, convenient way, uh, empty box which you can insert whichever number you want. And the number of treasuries inserted into that box for the last 30 years has been net debt of around about 20% of GDP. And uh, that hasn't been revisited despite the global financial crisis and a structural fall in, in uh, global interest rates. So we saw a re- there was um, just before um, Gabriel McClough left, um, the Treasury, he gave a really interesting speech on exactly this and he talked about um, perhaps the sustainable level of debt for New Zealand now being long, higher in the long run rather than the 20%. The 20% figure came from essentially a belief that if we went above 30%, the rating agencies would start to look a bit more carefully at us and start to be, you know give us a bit more of the, of the eye in terms of, well, what are you doing? The average recession or earthquake or something else cost about 10% of GDP 
in terms of net core crown debt spending. So if you had one, roughly you have one every 10 years in terms of a recession, then if, you're, if, you, if you go up to 30%, you've then got 10 years to then get back down to 20% so that you can then have this automatic stabilizer in terms of debt going up and down. I think what we've seen through COVID and certainly through the GFC and, and, and the experiments around the world in terms of governments borrowing unprecedented amounts of money is that the question of whether or not that 20% figure is meaningful anymore for New Zealand. Um, as you said, as you quite rightly said, Standard and Poor's and Fitch and, and Moody's certainly have no problem with our level of debt. Um, you know, AAA ratings, we're the, we're the only advanced economy that's just improved its ratings. In the middle of COVID. In the middle of COVID. Yeah, and we're scared of the bond vigilantes when actually the, the bond fund managers of the world are desperate to lend us more money. And we have this now structural change in the global economy where there is a surplus of savings, where people are desperate to put their money into what they see as the safest type of investments, which are government bonds. And even though the world's government bonds are being hoovered up by, wait for it, central banks, mm. <laughs> you know, that actually leaves even less room um, or less things for those people who want to save to buy. So why don't we offer it to them? Well, I mean, certainly, you know, um, until very recently, the um, 10-year government bond rate was below the inflation rate. So in real terms, investors were paying us to take our debt. Um, now, um, you know, that won't last forever, but we could be locking away debt for very long time frames at very, very low interest rates. And again, you know, it's about choices. Do you want to use that historic opportunity presented by very, very low interest rates, very high demand for very secure government debt like New Zealand has to make investments to build that more productive, sustainable and inclusive economy in the future. It's like a debt cultural cringe, which we haven't managed to shake off. Now, let's look at the government's decision. This was a surprise to um, freeze uh, public sector pay, at least for those people earning more than 100K. And if you're earning between 60 and 100K, you you needed a special note from the doctor to to get a pay increase. (laughs) An exceptional circumstance. And then, in theory, um, some of those pay increases would be pushed down below 60K. Uh, this was pretty much out of the blue. Certainly a lot of people in the public sector didn't think about it and are pretty grumpy about it. Remember, these are the people who have done a lot of the hard work during COVID. So we're not talking, you know, bureaucrats on, on, uh, on the terrace, um, earning a couple of hundred K here. We're talking 350,000 people, most of whom are doctors and nurses and, and, um, uh, police officers and uh, uh, cleaners and various other people Mm. who um, Mm. are going to see their pay frozen. Uh, We're talking 350,000 people. About three quarters of those uh, apply above 60K. Mm. So this is a big chunk of people in New Zealand who have worked their butt off uh, in the last couple of years, particularly around COVID. Uh, I bet there's been a lot of hours unpaid there. And now the government jumps up and says, right, um, you know, things are too tight uh, and we're going to freeze the, freeze the pay. What's been the reaction out there in the, in the workforce and um, what do you think is going on here? Well, I think um, my, 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 uh, my economist colleague, Brad Olson, called it um, a funny kind of kindness. <laughs> um, um, and uh, so, you know, but I think we need to just set a couple of things straight about this. The government's given a, an expectation to its negotiators. This is still a pay negotiation. Um, under New Zealand rules, you have, to, you have to undertake a negotiation in good faith. 
You can't simply turn up. We, the, the collectives who will be bargaining on the other side will also have their expectations. So this isn't the Crown sending it in stone. This is simply the Crown setting an expectation to its negotiators. This is what we intend or want to see in pay negotiations. And the actual results we get will, be, will come out in the wash of those negotiations. Secondly, there are a lot of groups who um, have concluded pay negotiations already and will have pay rises during that three-year period. So they will actually still continue to see pay increases. Thirdly, this doesn't stop pay equity discussions and other pay claims where they're, you know, for, for fair pay or pay equity, where they're being made. So as a consequence, there's, there's, a, there's a lot out of pay that could still come through the system. It's just going to come through the system in different ways. You know, so, for example, for a lot of public workers are on a pay scale and every year they may move up annually on the increments. That will still occur. There's nothing stopping that in this pay expectations statement. And you could have a restructure where magically everyone goes up a up a level in the scale. Yes, and so that so there's plenty of not to mention contractors yes. who apparently don't apply here. Yes, um, so that so, so there's there's plenty. To be, but you're absolutely I don't I think you're absolutely on the the ball, Bernard. In terms of um, you know uh, sitting in Wellington Central um, yesterday, it was pretty feral. Uh, you know, public servants are fantastically unhappy that they've basically they feel as if they've. You know, gone over and above and beyond during COVID. A lot of you know, and some of the some of the, the kind of jobs where you think there's not a lot of love for policy workers, for bureaucrats in shiny suits sitting behind desks, and you know, they worked, they've worked and worked and worked, uh, and they you know they feel as if well, yes, I may have some job security, but I also feel as if I've put the hours in. So you know, there's a real question to be asked about where we'll actually really end up here. Do we actually believe that, that that zero rating will be actually where we get to in terms of... But it sends a message, and what it actually says is that the the government apparently is concerned that it's going to be spending too much money and that it's getting close to its you know debt limits, which, as we've demonstrated, mm-hmm. it isn't. As secondly, just stepping back in a, in a macroeconomic sense, you've got a government running fiscal policy and you've got a reserve bank mon- running monetary policy. Mm-hmm. And one of the concerns you mentioned earlier that a government might have if it wants to, you know, um, put pressure downwards on on wages in the public sector um, and uh, fire a shot across the bows is to essentially say to the economy at large that, you know, we think and wages are getting out of control and, and also that um, we think we're hitting our limits. We're mm. close to the point where, you know, we, we, we think wage inflation is going to take off and therefore we're going to intervene here. But... If that was the case, um, the Reserve Bank would be, you know, ramping up interest rates rapidly. You know, we'd have interest rates close to six, seven percent. That's what we've seen in the past. Um, certainly during two thousand seven, eight, um, when you know uh, uh, the public sector were getting higher pay increases. Uh, so, what this actually means is that the Reserve Bank is going to have to hold interest rates low for just a little bit longer. If we see wage inflation um, be slow to, to pick up, and we got numbers this week showing that private sector wage inflation is at one point six percent, it's not out of control. And um, so, what we've seen here is that, I mean, if I'm being a real cynic about it, this is the government deciding to do something which keeps interest rates low for just that little bit longer, which means that house prices stay high for just that little bit longer, or at least uh, continue to rise. 
And um, the natural supporters of the Labour government have just been told to um, just sit on it. I'm not necessarily sure I agree that there's that level of um, uh, coherent analysis in terms of being able to draw that line between that decision and interest rate decisions or other things. I think what's happened here is the Crown has very clearly signalled that it wants to focus any pay rises on the lowest paid, on those below 60,000. Um, and it wants to focus on getting pay equity and other issues through. And it wants to use its limited resources, as it sees it, um, for that purpose. Um, but you're absolutely right. Um, you know, Pay um, across the, the entire economy was at 1.6% according to the Labour Cost Index. Um, inflation's 1.5%, so essentially pay is flat. So the, the government's not doing much to help the Reserve no. Bank. It's not being a monetary policy mate. Pay um, in, the pri- in the public sector was 1.8% annually. So again, it's flat. It's, there's, not, there's not a huge increase. And a lot of that increase will have been the 1.8% versus 1.6%. Well, because the Crown's actually expanding the public sector workforce because of COVID and because of some other spending commitments. And so actually that generally lifts the pay costs for the Crown. So, um, you know, where we are is certainly done in an environment in which wage infa- inflation is pushing on general inflation, which would then cause the Reserve Bank to then start murmuring about, well, should we increase interest rates? Should we do other things? And, you know, the Reserve Bank's been very, um, you know, uh, certain about that there's still a need for continued stimulus required, that, you know, monetary policy is going to be run very loosely for the, for the foreseeable future in order to, to maximise the, the opportunities for growth. Um, so there doesn't seem to be that, uh, that demand for, uh, you know, f- for the kinds of uh, wage restraint. However, it is fair to say um, that, you know, the Crown having signalled this is also signalling that it does want to put where its money is at the very lowest paid. And so, you know, um, the question is, to what extent um, was the announcement, uh, 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 you know, uh, was it just was it just poorly worded rather than um, actually, uh, um, you know, the, the kind of bombshell that um, it could have that, that, that it seemed to be when it came out. If the government had come out and said, well, actually, we want to make sure that those at the very bottom, those the poorest workers are actually get a decent pay rise. And that's why we want to focus our attention. That would have been a, a far simpler message to say than zero increases for 100k. Yeah, and we won't get into a lot of um, depth on the issue of how the government is not borrowing enough to help the Reserve Bank buy bonds yes. because the, the Reserve Bank has said we need to buy $100 billion um, of government bonds by the middle of next year. And at the current rate of issuance by the government, um, the Reserve Bank's going to have to do something else to loosen monetary policy because there aren't enough bonds to buy. Sadly, the, the something else they'll have to do is to... Um, ramp up their funding for lending program to the banks, which are lending money at almost 0% or possibly even lower, i.e. paying the banks money to borrow money off the Reserve Bank, to do what? To lend more money into the housing market. So um, we'll park that for now. Finally, uh, the big news this week elsewhere in the um, labour market uh, is the government's announcement, finally, of um, a plan to get some legislation in for fair pay agreements. Now, for those people who haven't been following the ins and outs of the Labour Party's uh, policy before both elections on fair pay agreements and what they mean, can you give us an idea um, 
of you know how it's different to what we've had before, how big a change it is, and um, who might uh, get one of these things first. Sure. So fair pay agreements are a really welcome step, and you know what the government's put on the table. We you know we the CTU um, and I think you know um, uh, sort of uh, for the fellow unions certainly applaud um, you know and, and think it's a fantastic step. Essentially, fair pay agreements create a flaw for a sector or for an industry. And they say, so you, to pick an example, supermarket workers, um, there's a, we're going to create a, a, a pay and conditions floor beneath which you can't fall. It's about creating minimum standards across that, that, that sector. Um, now, you can argue, you can negotiate above that if you wish. And you can negotiate extra terms on top of that. And if you and if firms want to pay people more to recognise, you know, fantastic service or brilliant output, they can absolutely do that under a fair pay agreement. Um, but what this does is it creates a flaw where there's a common level of pay uh, for everyone inside that sector or that industry. Um, and it does things like uh, it, it, it has the opportunity to bring things like health and safety in. It has the opportunity to bring things like. Uh, holidays or leave or other issues into the into the table. One of the things it does is it, it bans strikes for an FPA. So you know there's been a lot of misinformation from certain quarters about well this is just a you know this is going to lead to strikes this is going to lead to industrial action actually it can't. So in terms of what an FPA does it creates a floor below which people can't floor before which people can't go. Um, and what that essentially does is it stops competition and the costs of competition falling on the workforce. So, you know, if you take an industry like bus drivers, essentially you've got a product that's pretty homogenous. You're driving a bus from point A to point B. The ability of a, of a firm to drive innovation out of that is pretty low. But what it can do is it can put the wages of the driver down, which is the biggest cost of driving the bus in the first place. And so when you're in a competitive tendering environment the costs of that competitive tendering tend to fall on the workforce rather than on the management because there's very little return to innovation or product development or anything else. So as proposed, um, the government would uh, say if you can get 10% of the workforce in that particular industry or 1,000 people to sign up and say they want to do it, then you could then uh, have a union that negotiated with um, a set of employers and came up with a, a baseline for pay. Uh, it seems to me the hospitality, retail, um, drivers sectors are um, one of the ones that that could benefit mm. from, from that sort of thing. Has anyone given a, a laundry list of we'll do this one, this one, this one? Well, I mean, you know, it requires, um, you, and I'm sure that unions will be now, Sort of, you know, saying to what, who do we think could be brought forward for this? Where do we think there'd be obvious benefits? And you know, and you've mentioned a couple in terms of, um, you know, uh, uh, retail, in terms of um, driving, um, where we've seen uh, uh, competition drive down wage costs rather than actually and deliver the returns to that to the firm in the form of profit rather than to the customer in the terms of.